This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're very excited today to be joined by two guests on uh, this version uh, and this episode of The Professor and the Practitioner. Of course, we're joined by Dr. Whitney Martinko from Villanova University, um, but we're also joined by Dr. Ryan Smith, and Whitney is going to introduce Dr. Smith um, from the Virginia Commonwealth University, and we're going to be talking uh, all about his work uh, and what's going on in Richmond and how it all connects to the broader world of preservation, both in research and in doing the work of preservation out in the field. So I'm excited to be a part of this conversation. But Whitney, um, I want to let you introduce uh, Ryan and, and get this conversation started. Great. Thanks so much, Nick. It's good to see you again. Hello to all the listeners out there. So I'm Pleased to introduce Dr. Ryan K. Smith as one of our guests today. Some of our regular listeners might remember that on our last episode of The um, Professor and the Practitioner, I recommended one of his books uh, about uh, Robert Morris's folly. But today I wanted to invite him on to talk about his new book, which is entitled uh, Death and Rebirth in a Southern City, Richmond's Historic Cemeteries. It was recently published by Johns Hopkins University Press uh, just back in 2020. And this book explores the history and recovery of several burial grounds in Richmond, Virginia, and looking at how histories of race have really shaped cemeteries, not just as they were founded, but as they have um, existed, been covered up, forgotten, and reclaimed in the city of Richmond. Dr. Smith is a professor of history at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University and has published a number of books on architectural history and material culture and U.S. history. And so I'm so excited to welcome him to the podcast today. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Hi, Whitney. Thank you so much. And Nick, great to see you all. Great to meet you. Great to yeah. be here. Great. Well, thanks for joining us. And I'm curious to hear a little bit more um, about your new book. Can you tell our listeners a bit about the book and maybe how you came to the project and what you hope it achieves out in the world? Sure. Well, you are so nice to say this. Uh, lovely things about Robert Morris's Folly, which, as you know, was set in Philadelphia and mm -hmm. had a little bit to do with preservation, but uh, only at the tail end and, and something of an afterthought. It was a more in an attempt to bring to life that world of the 1790s and early 1800s. And so after I was finishing that book, I thought I was going to turn actually to a different preservation project. Um, I was thinking about lighthouses, actually. It seems like the story of lighthouses in this country is usually nostalgic and talks about the keepers' families and all of that. But it seems like the lighthouses themselves have gone through a pretty incredible journey of preservation in and of themselves. But I got sidetracked by the cemeteries. And it was it started off so innocently. Uh, a friend across town who teaches at the University of Richmond, Doug Winiarski, suggested that we co-teach a class on the history of Richmond cemeteries together. And it, it, uh, as you say, I like material culture. I like the landscape. I like architectural history and I like religious symbolism. So it sounded like a, an interesting approach, but at first I thought it might be too narrow, you know, maybe teach a whole class just on Richmond cemeteries. Maybe we should go broader than that. But at the end, I found myself so energized by the types of stories, by the types of uh, engagements that my students and I were having as I ended up teaching that class for a number of years afterwards and also by the way the stories of the cemeteries had been told, 
Um, it seemed like there was a number of books on maybe our most famous cemetery here in, Rich, in Richmond, uh, Hollywood Cemetery, which was founded in 1847 and ended up being one of the largest Confederate cemeteries in the nation because of the number of uh, Confederate soldiers buried there. But there wasn't a whole lot else on the rest of the burial landscape. And so I wanted, by the end of teaching uh, a number of classes in this to fill out some stuff that I thought the students should be reading that, that wasn't written there. But as you say, too, it was not just a history of the origins and developments of these different spaces, comparing, say, Hebrew Cemetery with St. John's Churchyard, uh, with the post-emancipation African-American cemeteries. It was an attempt to see how certain sites had been preserved and lavished with a lot of public attention and funds, and other sites had not only been marginalized and sidelined, but actively targeted for destruction. And uh, we're familiar you know, more and more with that story these days across the country. And so I was hoping that the story that seemed to be developing in the book about not only the earliest burial landscape uh, in, this, in this area, but also what's going on with that burial landscape today. So that title, Death and Rebirth, hopefully speaks to really the dynamic preservation landscape that surrounds all of these sites of burial, not only in Richmond, but across the country as well. We're in a super interesting moment in the country's history, it seems like, in terms of recalibrating and reclaiming spaces that had been lo uh, lost and desecrated. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I love when research projects develop in tandem with students and teaching interests. I think it, it, it ends up helping the writing process, right? Because in some ways you're co-writing with your audience as well as collaborators. So that's that's fascinating to know it came out of teaching. And, you know, you mentioned that you're interested in these sort of the full history of these cemeteries and you're coming at this as an early Americanist, right? Sort of similar to me, we're both trained, you know, as historians, very interdisciplinary historians. But I'm curious if you found yourself writing in a different way or thinking in a different way or having to learn new histories to understand sort of the later 19th and the 20th century histories of these places. I think that's something that, you know, historians of place, it's hard to really uh, say that we focus on one particular area, right? Many historians identify with the era that they specialize in, but then to really write these full histories of place, it really in it involves knowing sort of 18th, 19th, 20th century history. So I'm curious what was new to you, maybe what you read in uh, in greater detail that you hadn't studied as much before. Well, that's a that's a great point. And it was certainly true. And maybe the most practical element of that is that my chapters in the book tried to bring us up to the current day. And as I was finishing that book in 2020, the entire landscape of Richmond was changing around me. And so during even page proofs, as I was tweaking the very last kind of elements of the, the, the concluding sections of each of these chapters, I was having to make some kind of acknowledgement for, for everything that was happening around me. So as you say, as a historian of the early American Republic, <laughs> that was a new experience to me to be thinking about writing about stuff as it's happening around us and when to be able to say this, the story is done enough for me to be able to send it back to the publishers for print. And of course, stuff has happened since the book has come out that I would love to be able to fold back into it. Um, but you're right that uh, I hadn't done much with the 20th century in terms of my own 
research and studies. And so it was a, a something of a crash course for me to learn about the urban planning process in the cities in the 20th century with suburbanization, with infrastructure, with urban renewal, gentrification. These were critical themes for, for preservation and, and for our modern life that uh, in my previous projects, I think, hadn't really prepared me so well for. I hadn't really done much with oral history before. And so a lot of this book was going out to meet, and frankly, a lot of the energy of the book was getting to meet the, the grassroots volunteers who were reclaiming these spaces, um, volunteer groups, friends groups, or even just ad hoc, you know, weekend warrior type volunteers, descendant families, descendant groups, tribal entities. Uh, and trying to engage with this whole landscape of grassroots preservation and, and be able to find a way to talk with them, to build trust, to try to represent their stories and their voices as accurately as I possibly could. And, and I also found great partners in the more formal preservation landscape with, say, Preservation Virginia, with Historic Richmond, with our Department of Historic Resources for the state. Uh, so, uh it felt like education and citizenship in modern life as much as it felt like a history project for me. And I found that super exciting. And hopefully to my students, I was able to bring the students into that too, so that they were helping to do some of those interviews, helping to break some of the ground and find out who the developer was for a particular project, say that was building condominiums right up to the literal edge of the earliest Jewish burial ground in downtown Richmond. And one of my students had a great conversation, a really illuminating conversation with that developer about, you know, what does this mean to be putting condominiums with little patios that overlook, you know, ground that dates from 1789 is the earliest Jewish burial ground in the state. You know, is this is this appropriate? What do your residents think of that? And so to have the students help help me have those conversations and um, uh, it just was was incredibly stimulating, enthusiastic, satisfying, and hopefully enriched the books. And 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 again, I doing history on the past. We're used to working with documents or material culture, but to try to convey living voices in these preservation stories. You know, there's there's a lot of great models out there that, you know, and, and journalists do this all the time. But as you say, Whitney, that's not what I was trained to do. And right. so it was, <laughs> it was an interesting pivot for me. Yeah. And that sort of links up with Nick's work. I was going to say getting into getting into sort of his work more. Yeah, I was I was going to ask to Ryan about the um, the website that then kind of came out of this, the Richmond Cemetery side. Um, talk to us a little bit. And, you know, I think. I like to put things in context for people who are listening around the country who are maybe interested in doing something similar or like lessons learned kind of things. So how did that piece come about? Some people might be curious where the funding for, come for it. Um, what what kind of expense was associated with it? Because it's very cool. And we'll put a link in the show notes to it. I enjoy kind of looking through that. And is that going to be kind of a living document? Is it a snapshot? Talk to us about the digital side of this project, which I think is really cool. Well, there's just another great example, Nick, of how I was not necessarily trained in digital history or creating websites and putting, you know, students work online or things like that. So this is all me figuring it out on the fly, as so many podcasters are doing these days, right? It's we didn't start out with maybe this this medium in mind, but we find our way there. And so for me, the website came about when I was teaching 
the class on Richmond cemeteries, it, it got to be very exciting for me. And I, I saw the students responding in a way that they didn't respond to my other classes. I had, you know, hopefully great experience with students in other classes, but this was just a different kind of engagement with our local community and with a sense of the past. And they were doing such great research on stuff that stories that really needed to be told that was not out there for the public to see that it seemed to just a terrible shame to just file it away in my office drawer somewhere or to have the students just share it with their own immediate family and then it, that be the end of the, the story. So I tried to figure out how could I get the students to have a broader audience and to think about a broader audience for their work. And so the, the website idea popped into mind and it also, it serves kind of two purposes. It's at, uh, the title, I guess, is just Richmond Cemeteries. It's www.richmondcemeteries.org. And so it, it's structured fairly simply. Uh, there's an initial landing site that explains what this is about. And then there's pages dedicated to all of what I would call the major burial grounds across the city from its founding, or even before its founding, up into the present um, and then there are there's a section on news, which is something like just a blog from me as to what's going on that I'm noticing in terms of preservation in the cemeteries across town. And so for each of these individual uh, pages for each cemetery, the students were doing biographical individual studies of particular gravestones or grave markers or even just folks that we know were buried in the area, but maybe a marker doesn't survive for. And so the students would produce what I call podcasts, but it's really just an audio guide to those sites. Because as I say, some of these cemeteries have great markers, maps, tour guides, structured apparatus for visitors, but plenty of other sites that are worth visiting had no signage at all, had no guidebooks, had no published research. And so I, I thought, well, maybe this is a way that a visitor to a place like Hebrew Cemetery uh, could bring with them a uh, on their smartphone uh, a little guide and have the students narrate to where to find a particular gravestone, what the history of that person was, how they contributed to the city, um, what their gravestone might mean. And so this was all us just figuring it out as we went along. And so, Nick, the, the funding for it is, is almost laughable. And I hope this is encouraging for other folks out there. Um, essentially, there's no funding for it. You know, well, we've got um, my IT department and we've got uh, web hosting services here at BCU. So I don't necessarily have to pay uh, for some of that. But uh, it's, it's basically me and WordPress. Uh, one of our IT guys told me that uh, WordPress powers an ungodly proportion of the websites that are out there in the world today. You know, at least 50 percent, he, he thought, maybe a, a lot higher than that. And so he, his philosophy was, well, if you can learn your way around WordPress, then you can navigate you know, with the best of them out there. And um, it, it certainly, for me, gets the job done. I keep thinking that maybe there's a grant in my future that I could brush up the site and make it a little bit more... Um, ready for prime time, but uh, it, this is all me just cobbling together bits and pieces of WordPress as, as I can find the time. And has I feel like that, that's this. I'm just oh, gonna was, say, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. We're both, we're both excited. I, I was just gonna say, has that then yielded? Has there been any impact on preservation as a result of any of this? Have there been sort of like, oh wow, this is an issue, and now we're gonna take care of this? Do, are you seeing that kind of come to fruition? And I know, you know, in the 
the, the pre-show conversation, you were talking about some National Register nominations and mm-hmm. things that have come um, recently. Are, do you think that the the engagement around the website and the and the research and the publication is that you know this is like the crux of uh, professor and practitioner at the at the intersection? Is it then yielding preservation? It is, and it is also leading me into a, a word that I know we're going to get to, which is advocacy, right? So historians are also, you know, we've got our opinions, but in terms of modern policy, I'm not used to being in the role of trying to advocate for one group against or advocate against city policies. So um, the, the website, to get to your question, Nick, I think has hopefully helped contribute to some of the at least the conversations that have gone on around here, and maybe my best example for that would be the site that we call now the Shaco Hill African Burying Ground. Um, there was a, about a one-page description that was a little bit uneven in terms of its uh, the, the presentation of its history in uh, a small book that was published about 20, 30 years ago. But other than that, it had been largely kind of untouched by the historical literature and not many people were talking about that. And so I put up uh, what I knew about the site when I first launched it about, about that burying ground uh, on, on richmondcemeteries.org. Well, that starts to become much larger, much more significant than I had initially thought at the time. Um, I was calling it the potter's field, uh, the burial, which is what it shows up on the latest maps of it near the city's poorhouse in the northern part of town. Well, at the end of this whole process of engaging with folks through the website and my own historical research, we think now we can say that this could be the largest burial ground for the enslaved in the entire nation. Um, this is a site that was in operation from 1816 to 1879. Um, it grew to from an initial two acres to perhaps up to 31 total acres. Um, it's an incredibly rich and long running site uh, that can compare with the largest burial grounds for the enslaved in the nation. And yet, even as I was starting this project out, I had no idea of that. I started to bring in some of my own research, but one of the descendants connected with that site reached out to me through the website. She was trying to find her ancestor. Her name is Lenora McQueen. And she was a researcher from Texas. And she had been visiting Virginia. And she had traced um, her fourth great-grandmother, whose name is Kitty Carey, uh, who died in Richmond in 1857, enslaved by a white family. And um, she, we figured, she asked me where her likely burial site was, and we said almost certainly it would be here at the Shaco Hill African Burying Ground. And that immediately led me into a, a partnership with, with Lenora, and um, we were able to now, through her advocacy, help the city uh, reacquire. They had All of the, the property had been basically sold away or given away to private entities, and so Len, Lenora really... Um, became a, a champion for the site in a way that I've rarely seen an individual make it make a difference. But as her story was evolving, as the research we were finding was evolving, I was able to put it up on the website and and also put it into my little blog news feed. And so we were able to share with the public the, the rising stature of, of this and what we were learning about this burial ground. And so at the end of the day, about just two weeks ago, we were able to celebrate the first public sign 
um, that was unveiled. A state historic highway marker um, was unveiled on the site two weeks ago, and um, it was also listed on the National Register of Historic Places as a key contributing property to what we call the Shaco Hill Burying Ground Historic District. And uh, so was able to put up the, the marker program, the marker text, the, uh, the, the National Register. As we were moving towards the National Register listing, we were able to circulate calls for, you know, public engagement with the, the meetings. So we, we just used the website. And, and even still, I think Lenora, in dealing with the press, she was featured prominently on CBS's national morning show just a week or two ago, and she points folks to this little richmondcemeteries.org website as one of the resources to learn more about the site. And so to, to see where we've ended up with the public recognition and the momentum for that site, uh, that, that is the Shackleville African Burying Ground, and for my little website to have a, a small role to play in helping get the word out, um, you know, I just could not have imagined uh, playing any kind of a role in, in, in changing the, the literal landscape, changing the um, acknowledgement of the landscape in that way. And, and I certainly don't want to take too much credit for that. Again, this is a, a very large descendant community. This is part of a larger conversation. But again, the website served as, served as just one resource where people could learn more about not only the history, but also the, the current attempts to protect it from ongoing threats. That's amazing. And I think that you know, in in that way, it's a a great example of what research can do. I think sometimes people think of research and professors and writing books as like the final word on something, like oh, the expert has spoken. But to me, I mean, research is most exciting when it's a piece of a conversation, right? And so that a book um, can continue that conversation with a website, and that it brings into conversation people with places and past with present. And so, I mean, I think that's a perfect example of probably the spirit that we have this podcast in, right? To think about those intersections and what happens when we approach research as part of a broader constellation of advocacy and preservation and learning well, and teaching. Yeah. And I was going to say, you know, Ryan was saying he's he's just now starting to think about advocacy or kind of uh, broaching that. But I think he he may, I mean, he's obviously a great professor, but he may have missed his calling in advocacy <laughs> because uh, I, th- I, th- I think you've, you've, you've clearly figured out and seen the value of how research can impact this. And I think it's also good, you know, kind of back to that idea of like lessons learned for other people around the country. I think that there's tremendous value in kind of seeing what you've done in that, as you said, it's a WordPress site. It, there was not a lot of money behind it, but getting information out there. Um, and even if you're not, you know, a PhD historian, you can do some research, put information together and get people excited and aware of resources. And that awareness is, you know, the first step. People have to understand something before they can fall in love with it. Right. And they have to fall in love with it before they're going to take action. And those are the, those are the steps. Right. And, um, I think there's, there's big lessons learned in what you've done here. And I also think, I mean, and Whitney and I have talked about this before, that it also you're up against this, the reality that the preservation community has grappled with what are cemeteries in terms of historic resources. I think if you ask the general public, is a cemetery a historic place? The answer is like, yeah. But you ask a state historic preservation office, is it a historic place? And then you get this kind of long winded answer about maybe sort of kind of. Um, and I think that sort of changing that narrative and engaging the public around that is, is exciting and is important. Um, because as you said, there's some 
bad things being done to historic cemeteries all over the place, and and the laws can be pretty lax. Um, and, you know, here, here in Maryland, they certainly are. And Nick, I agree with you on the challenges of getting a cemetery listed and recognized on a, a state or the national register, and how much harder for these marginalized communities, for especially African-American graveyards that have been, as we've seen across the country, systematically targeted for destruction by infrastructure projects. And so for as just an example of one of many across the country, for the Shaco Hill African burying ground, there's, there's no surviving above ground markers. You know, there was no signage. And so how do we make the case to the, within the structure of that uh, National Preservation Act to that, that this is a site that has significance, that has integrity, that has uh, a historic nature that can compare with these other privileged sites who have their fabric that survives, that uh, ha have a sense of integrity, so to speak, and that there's um, material there that, that you can trace a line to for the period of significance that you're talking about. And so one of the tools we used was to try to argue that this site's destruction and its current state should be considered a historic act. And so the current condition of that site it, it is a historic landscape. Uh, and so it's, it's a tragic argument on one element, on one hand to make because we're in a sense, you know, uh, promoting the, the idea that more attention should be paid and enshrined in the national register because of the site's destruction, which is not the end of the story on the site, but as a way to just navigate, as you say, Nick, that, that high bar, or that, that, that difficulty in getting a cemetery listed. And so how much harder for the cemeteries of the enslaved that, that don't have the kind of markers and the kind of protection um, that so many other cemeteries that are already um, having a hard time getting listed. Um, well, and this has been a reoccurring theme and Whitney and I have talked about this and we've talked with other folks about just this, this challenge of integrity. And, you know, they, I think preservationists or people listening who are familiar with getting things on the National Register, or even if you're not, um, there's just a lot of emphasis and effort put towards proving integrity. And um, I've heard somebody else say it before, and I've joked about this, that it's not an integrity Olympics. Um, and that, you know, I think we, we need to unwed ourselves from that because there's great value in places that perhaps don't have great integrity, particularly with marginalized communities. And we did a, here at Preservation Maryland, a statewide historic context on LGBTQ resources. And a lot of those resources were deemed ineligible for going on in the National Register just because, you know, the windows had been changed or there was vinyl siding put on the building or something like that. But they still were really important to the history of LGBTQ, you know, resources and history and stories here in the state. And that was challenging to see that. And you see that in cemeteries, you see it in, in any type of marginalized community where, you know, they've had to adapt and their buildings couldn't always be pristine and they pop windows out or they put vinyl on because they couldn't afford to paint and, and all those sorts of things. And so um, I think it's great that we can tease out all these issues, Whitney, in this one project and sort of see the challenges, the pitfalls and the, the potential for preservation. But I want to turn it back to you, Whitney. Yeah, well, and I was going to say, I think that that's a really great way to think about integrity and, and as you say, tragic, but a way to sort of embrace the whole history of sites. I think that historians, public historians, and, you know, a lot of architectural historians as well really have for a while been embracing this idea of, you know, layered history, telling change over time, not really dialing in on one specific moment of importance or significance over others. Um, 
But I think our standards for historic preservation maybe still need to catch up. It's hard to be fitting, you know, the square peg in the round hole. And I think that, you know, with LGBTQ sites, there's been some effort here in Philadelphia to do the same. And, and part of that is saying, you know, these sites were meant to be hidden in the 20th century landscape. And so those changes are sort of the interior spaces or the fact that maybe the exterior of the building isn't remarkable if you're looking at architectural style. That's that's historic evidence, right? That's the historic part that makes it significant. And so I do wonder if we're going to be seeing more and more uh, attention to the period of significance being that of of change or of demolition or marginalization. Um, hopefully, before maybe we develop a bit more of a nimble set of uh, in- integrity <laughs> definitions yeah. or um, of stand- standards. Yeah. Emphasis on hopefully. So, um, I mean, we could have Ryan, we should, should have him back again and talk more or go down to Richmond and, and do one on site, uh, which would be great. Um, but we probably need to pull this conversation together and, and kind of come up with a wrap here. I am curious about sort of what's next, um, Ryan, like, what are you working on next? This was a hell of a project that's yielded some real world results. So you've got, you've set the bar really high. What are you working on now? Well, that's kind of you to say, um, I, I love, I, I got so much out of the cemetery book that my, if you've looked at my list of other books, I have tended to kind of hop from project to project. And so I was, was looking to, to do that now after the cemetery book came out, I, as I said, I had been thinking about a lighthouse preservation project, um, down the line. And I, I, I dipped my toe back into those waters and starting to open up those research files. And I, I hope that I can continue with it. But I do find that everything that we've just talked about here, the, the public history work, the collaborative work, you know, working uh, with different sets of communities. Uh, and there, the fact that there's just so much of these stories that have not been told that I can't quite get clear of the cemetery stories. <laughs> and so uh, I'm working on a couple articles, a couple uh, kind of things that didn't quite make it into the book or things that are emerging now. Um, for example, we've we've got a whole set of order books from a stone carver here in Richmond named the J. Henry Brown Monument Company. And he's got about uh, literally 15 to 20 volumes of order books that survived from about 1900 into the 1940s. And this is one of the premier stone carvers in the city. And he had been working across all these different demographics, uh, immigrants, you know, uh, old time Richmonders, uh, Confederate uh, soldiers and veterans, um, black families, Jewish families. And so these order books provide us just an unbelievable treasure trove of how different groups were ordering different memorials in, in different times across the city's history. And I, I thought for a while that a student should be working on, there's just more than one project there for a single narrative. So I'm Back to kind of Whitney's point, it's it's really gratifying to get the students involved. So I'd love to get the students a little bit more involved with these order books and then connecting them to the landscape to see how the stone carver's work ends up appearing and and preservation too. Which of these uh, pieces that he 
designed in the early 19-teens survives. Uh, and, and many of these African-American cemeteries have been vandalized. And some of our initial look through some of these volumes that there's a, a large, a shockingly large proportion that are no longer on the site. And we can only presume that they've been uh, destroyed or lost uh, sometime over the years. And so that's got me really excited. Uh, uh, I'm still engaged with, with advocacy, as, as you mentioned too, the Shaco Hill African Burying Ground, but also we've got uh, a tremendous assemblage of cemeteries on the east end of town, Evergreen Cemetery, East End Cemetery, which together make up almost 80 acres. These were cemeteries founded in the 1890s by the Black community during Jim Crow segregation. And uh, the, the, the preservation story there has, has been really difficult. Um, they were acquired by a nonprofit entity in uh, twenty. 16 or 17 and the, the second one in 2019. And I'm sorry to say that their condition has not improved since then. They've they've not built public trust in their efforts. We've had a hard time getting some basic questions asked about how public money has supported those efforts, about the expertise that's been brought to bear on those sites. And so it's it's hard for me to watch what's going out on out at Evergreen and East End with tens of thousands of historic African-American graves and and to just blithely move on to, to a project that has nothing to do with, I feel so invested, you could tell, I guess, I just feel so invested now in all of these sites that um, I'm hoping that there's a way to continue to continue that research in some way. That's amazing. I can't wait to see where that all goes. And I love that it's going to continue to develop in tandem with community members, but also with students. I mean, I think we often say on this podcast how we are doing things that we were not trained to do, right? That we're mm -hmm. figuring things out on our own um, and developing new ways of communicating and doing research. And so um, I'm, I'm always glad when I know that we're not alone in that effort. And hopefully it sounds like you're giving your students amazing training that um, maybe we didn't get in the classroom that is going to serve them and all of our communities really well. Thanks. And I'm sure you all would resonate with this, too. But I always hear from the preservation community um, professionals, as well as from the volunteers at these sites and the descendant communities, that it's the younger generations that that we need to get engaged with these sites. You know, that there's no future for them if the younger generations are not as engaged as the older generations. And so it does seem um, not only personally invigorating and makes my work better, but it's also the longevity of the sites. I think we have to keep in mind and trying to find ways to not just, of course, college students, but, but high school students and younger. We had um, an elementary school choir uh, singing the opening at the unveiling of that uh, state historic marker at that program last week at the Shaco Hill African Burying Ground. And so many of the speakers, you know, were made mention of the fact of how important it was that those elementary school, school students were there and could engage with a historic site in a, in a new way. Well, I feel like that's a great place perhaps to wrap the conversation and, and thank uh, Ryan for joining us. Whitney, it's always fun to have these conversations. And I know you, you dropped a hint on us that you're headed towards a sabbatical. So maybe we can Catch up, catch up with you um, later this summer and talk about what you're learning and all the cool stuff that you're doing um, on your next research project. Um, but thank you both for joining us and uh, look forward to uh, continuing this conversation sometime in the near future. Great to be here. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to preservecast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. 
Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.